Good morning. I'm feeling super this morning. In fact, I've felt super for the last couple of weeks because the weather's been so nice. <laughs> Enjoy today. The latest weather report I heard a high Tuesday of zero and a low over Wednesday, uh, Tuesday night to Wednesday of negative 17. That's not even wind chill. We're going to be reminded that it's winter, so uh, get out there today and enjoy it. Not yet, but uh, about a 30 minutes or so. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Two weeks ago, if you were here, you'll recall that we looked closely or began looking closely at the unity of believers, something that we discovered was heavy even foremost on Jesus' heart the night before he died on the cross. That night, Jesus prayed that God would continue to make all of us, all believers, one, even as God is one, even as he and God are one. Quite a prayer there in John 17. And that's some unity. Some unity among believers that is on Jesus' heart to be one as God is one. My goodness, how could anyone be more unified than that? May they continue to be one as we are one, Jesus earnestly prayed. And then last week we turned to Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, that first century church that as far as we know, given the historical and biblical record, had the most perplexing problems of any first century church. And maybe at the root of their problem was one in particular that they had, and it was unity. Believers running around thinking they were greater than others because of their particular gifts or spiritual gifts. And we also saw in Paul's instruction to the Corinthians that unity doesn't mean same. But biblical unity is a unity in diversity, that despite the many differences among us, we remain unified in Christ. In fact, precisely because of the many differences among us, we need to remain, and we are remaining unified in Christ. I suggested to you even that diversity among us is in fact necessary if we are to fully witness who God is to others. The more diversity within our unity, the greater the witness to everyone, to every person created by nature to crave, to hunger for some place to belong. And this morning, I'd like to look with you at another of Paul's letters, a letter that's often called the unity letter. We know it better as Ephesians. And within that letter, we find one passage in particular that many conclude is more descriptive of the church in action than any other passage in the Bible, and that's the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4. As I read, think about what the church in action is like, according to Paul. Ephesians 4, verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble 
and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, and now Paul quotes Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, Jesus, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Paul gives a picture in quoting Psalm 68 to show that Christ apportioned gifts and all of a sudden he's, oh, speaking of ascension, think of the descension of Christ, the coming down from heaven, God becoming man, the incarnation. Wow, what a picture of unity. And then the ascension in first century times, by Roman law even, had a flavor of proving that someone was divine if they ascended. And so Paul shows Jesus ascending too to be one with God. Again, what an amazing picture of unity in this book of unity and in this chapter of the unified church in action. It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. These are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. So what does Paul tell us that the church in action looks like? Or perhaps better stated, what does she feel like in her spirit? What does this biblical unity and diversity look and feel like in the church, in the people of God? What flavor does it have when people come into contact with us and get a taste? Paul lists four things, especially in this passage on unity. See them all in verse 2. Humility, gentleness, patience, and what I'm calling tolerant love. 
These are probably not the first things we would list in describing a life worthy of the calling we have received, as Paul terms our witness and our lives, but they're exactly what's needed. And the key in all four of these virtues is getting rid of something first. What do I mean? Paul lists humility first, and that's no surprise, as its opposite, pride, is the foundation of every sin. And in order to have humility, we need to get rid of, we have to renounce self-centeredness. Even secular counselors will tell you that a proper self-understanding is among the most crucial ingredients in a healthy human life. And yes, my friends, we are all indeed marvelous creatures made in the image of very God, but we're made relational, intended for relationship with God because without God we have no meaning, none. And yes, Humans are intended to be something great, but in the process of trying to be that, it's so easy for us to become self-centered and self-seeking. As one commentator puts it, we relive the plot of Genesis 3 each day of our lives. Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve sought to be greater by doing what was right in their own eyes and reaching for it on their own. Consider how much of life's energy, of what goes on even in a day that's directed towards self, get something to eat, get something to wear, get gas in my car, go do this, go do this, go do this, because this is what I need to do. And we seek respect, and we desire recognition for all we've done. And we want honor, and we want authority. Corporations sponsor seminars like assertiveness training. And we're encouraged everywhere we look in our culture to look out for number one. Can you imagine a seminar on humility training? How about one on patience training, gentleness training, or one on love and how to love? We could use those seminars. Instead, our our self-seeking bent quickly evolves into jealousy and anger. And jealousy is always hot on the heels of starting to disparage others. You show me a believer who speaks badly of a fellow believer, and I'll show you a believer who struggles with pride. We need to give up self-importance and honor and self-congratulation and self-look-at-what-I've-done every turn, the Christian faith is an assault against such self-seeking. We're indeed important, the apple of God's eye, the Bible calls us, but we're not to seek importance. We're not the center. God is. All we are 
and all we have is his gift. And if we truly appreciate that, what in the world do we have to brag about and thump our chests over? Humility is a habit that we need to continue to develop. And while there are different steps and exercises to humility, things like confession, obedience, prayer, look at how many of the spiritual disciplines advocated by God have to do with us developing humility bow down on our knees and worship we just sung. I give my life to you we just sung. And while we need to exercise those different steps, the goal, one definition, I guess, the end, in the end, humility, humility is a continual, constant awareness of God, a continual, constant awareness of our own sinfulness and frailty, and a continual, constant awareness of the equal value of other people. Humility is a continual awareness of God, our own sinfulness and frailty, and the equal value of all others. That great theologian, country music star Mac Davis, he wrote a great song on humility. A lot of those country singers are pretty good theologians, at least when it comes to identifying the human condition. Do you know his song on humility? Ah, yes, some of you know it. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way, you're ahead of me. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. <laughs> to know me is to love me. Well, I must be a whale of a man. If you know the song, you know I'm editing as I go. <laughs> oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Oh, there's more. Right. Oh, you applaud, you get another verse. I, I used, to, you thought I was kidding, I used to have me a girlfriend, but I guess she just couldn't compete with all of those love-starved women who keep flowering at my feet. Well, I could probably find me another one, but they're all in awe of me. Who cares? I never get lonesome because I cherish my own company. I guess you could say I'm a loner, an outlaw, tough and proud. I could have lots of friends if I wanted them, but then I wouldn't stand out in a crowd. Some folks say that I'm egotistical, 
Hey, I don't even know what that means. I guess it has something to do with the way that I wear my Levi blue jeans. Okay, now all of you on the chorus, I've got the words. Now let's finish strong. Now, I was blessed when Craig changed the lyrics of that song in light of what we're talking about, right? He changed it from I to our, right? May our life, our world, our love be. So I've done the same, following his excellent example. So now, let me hear it, church. Ready? Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when we're perfect in every way. We can't wait to look in the mirror because we get better looking each day. To know us is to love us. We must be a whale of a church. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but we're doing the best that we can. Big finish. We're doing the best that we can. Okay, give yourselves a hand. Good job. Mac Davis would be proud. Now, I love that song. I really love that song. And part of the reason why I want to sing it this morning because I like firsts. And I would, I would guess that maybe it's the first time a Christian church anyway has ever sung, Lord, I want to be humble, Sunday morning service. But I love the song because it's obvious, I think, that Mac Davis wrote it to get us to laugh at our self-centeredness. If he really feels that way, he's got a problem. But if you've seen him in concert, you know he sings it. And that's what's endearing about the song, isn't it? And it gets us chuckling. It tickles that funny bone. And it, when it makes us laugh, when we can laugh at our self-centeredness, let me tell you what, laughter is one of God's most powerful instruments to cut through ego and pride and I deserve and look at what I did and what in the world are these people doing when they should do what I want to do. If you can laugh at that tendency in you, man, it's a great way to find humility. So go ahead. You can hum it this week only if you don't truly mean it, okay? And let me add this before we need to move on. I've got three more to go. Nowhere, nowhere in the church is humility more important than in her leaders. Nowhere is more important than in her leaders. The Bible says that leaders are to model the attitude for others, and experience shows, go figure, they're the ones most likely to fail. We place pastors on stages, and sometimes there's an expectation that they need to perform and entertain, even sing songs. We give leaders authority, leaders, and they're subjected to constant, ongoing critical review. And any defect, any defect that any leader has in self-understanding will be magnified beyond measure in leadership in the church. So pastors and others in positions of leadership, we need to be first in line to learn about and exercise humility, beginning with me, first and foremost. Second, Paul lists gentleness as a mark of the church in action. What do we need to get rid of to have gentleness? In order to have gentleness, we need to get rid of harshness and violence. 
healthy relationships cannot exist under force and threat. You know, some Christians, and really all of us, I think from time to time at least, I know I struggle with this one too, sometimes we can get so brittle and so entrenched in our positions and our views and so hostile that no one even wants to be around us. It's a great witness. No one wants to even be around someone who's, who's bitterly defensive. One commentator makes this comment. Even if they are right, even if they are right, they are repulsively right. Gentleness, on the other hand, is, is not repulsive. It's inviting. It's nurturing. When you're gentle towards someone, it communicates, it conveys a sensitivity, an empathy, a desire that I'm not here to do you harm and a valuing of the other person wherever they are. We need to learn to look at people as if they are all marked, fragile, handled with care. Even the ones, and in some cases, especially the ones that don't seem fragile because often they're the most fragile. Gentleness nurtures people. It respects people. allows them to drop defenses, which is always, always leads to greater intimacy. Paul next lists patience. Here's another good one, and another one I need to work on. Boy, I'm not doing very well with my list. How about you? All four of these, I've got such a long way to go. How about you? In order to have patience, we need to renounce and get rid of the tyranny of our own agendas. Oh, no, give that up? So important. I know I'm right. And they don't see it that way. It's got to happen, and it's got to happen now the way I think it should happen. I have to give that up? You know, we all have our own sense of timing, don't we? Small things and great things. When we think, when we think something should happen. And go figure, our own sense of timing rarely agrees with anyone else's sense of timing. Have you noticed? Sometimes that's an issue even with God, isn't it? I know it is for me. Our culture, my friends, has taught us to want it now and expect to get it when we want it. The entire arena of sexual perversion in our culture today. Boy, it'd really be kicked in the head if we had more patience. A lack of patience is really another form of self-centeredness. Isn't it? These all are actually. Maybe Paul needed to pull them apart a little bit to get 
a little bit more windows into what self-centeredness is, but the idea that we shouldn't have to wait on anything when we know we're right, or we shouldn't have to wait on anyone when we deserve recognition. It's merely another form of pride, isn't it? My time is important. Ah, be patient. Patience is valuing other people enough to give them room and time to fail, to learn, and to develop. And it's especially necessary in allowing space to mature, allowing people that space to grow at their own rate rather than expect them to do everything right and to do it now. Be patient with one another, Paul says. And that flows nicely into the last one that Paul lists. He lists love. He puts it this way, bearing with one another in love. That's why I'm calling it tolerant love. In fact, Paul brackets the entire passage that we read with in love. Did you notice? It's called by theologians an inclusio, famous theological word for sandwich or bookends. You see a biblical writer bookend a passage with two ideas. It's meant to highlight those two ideas, and it tells us that those ideas are foundational and marks everything in between. And so we see in verse 2, as we've read, bearing with one another in love. And he goes through it all, and the other bookend there showing that all of it needs to be marked with love is in verses 15 and 16. Speak the truth in love. And the body grows up into Christ, the head, it builds itself up in love. And in order to have tolerant love, I'm going to phrase it this way and let me explain. In order to have tolerant love, we need to get rid of, renounce our own rights or our allegiance or the priority or the importance we place on our rights. And I know Sounds downright unconstitutional, doesn't it? Renounce our rights? My favorite quote on rights is from that very popular and famous person named Anonymous. My favorite quote on rights is this, Be careful of standing on your rights, for then God may stand on his. Yes, oh. Insisting on one's rights never leads to healthy relationships. Never. We need to learn to forego our rights and put up with each other in love. Can I be frank with you this morning? Not that I haven't been, but my name is Todd. Can I be frank? <laughs> All of us at times are a real pain in the butt, aren't we? If you're honest, can you say butt in church? Well, <laughs> pretend it has one T. No. I'm sure there are those who are the exception to the rule. I just haven't met them yet. And hey, I'm person number one. I can be a real pain 
Ask anyone who knows me. Especially those who know me best. I can be a real pain in the butt. And ask that about yourselves. Can you be a real pain in the butt? Do you know when you're being a pain in the butt? And you know others can be a pain in the butt. I bet I get an amen to that one. And the call to tolerant love, the church acting out tolerant love, will believers put up with each other in love? Especially when we're a pain in the butt. See, part of the problem with love, while it's not a problem with love, it's a problem of our understanding of true biblical love. The problem with our understanding of love is that we've bought into our culture's definition of love, that it's primarily a feeling. While it includes feeling, that is not at all its biblical foundation. Biblical love, rather, is a choice. Love is the act of caring enough to choose to give people your attention. It's often noted the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. We choose to invest in other people, and that commitment that we make, so help us God, and He will, enables us to put up with people. The old rock band Boston wrote a song. Don't worry, I won't sing it. More than a feeling. Talking about a girl named Marianne, and they're, and they're right about one thing. Love is more than a feeling. It's a choice. It's a commitment. Putting up with love means tolerating activities, choices, and conveniences we don't like. It may mean tolerating music or worship styles that are not fully satisfying to me. It may mean going through a trying time with another person but it will not allow, it will never allow writing the other person off. Now, take a look at our list of words that describe Paul's life worthy of the call of God that describes the church in action. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerant love. Some might be tempted to object, wow, all that sounds kind of wimpy. It's too passive. It's too weak. What about being strong and aggressive and having an agenda? What about confronting people that need to be confronted? If we try this humility approach thing, we're just going to be crushed and we're going to be worn out by all the selfish pain in the butt people. <laughs> On the contrary, this text tells us that this is exactly what is necessary to live the life worthy of the calling that we have received by grace. Humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerant love. And these virtues have nothing to do with weakness or passivity. Do you know how much strength it takes? You do know if you've tried. You know how much strength it takes to say no to self, you know how much strength it takes to put up with others in love? 
Do you know how much strength it takes to resist the temptation not to pound your own chest when you feel like you're getting the shaft? You've got to be way stronger to do that than just to go with the riptide of self. And Paul isn't saying that we simply allow people to be selfish, irresponsible, or a burden, and isn't saying that nothing's done and we enable them to be that way. And he speaks to that pointedly in other texts. Love seeks justice and care enough to confront, but confronts in love, or really isn't love. He's not just saying sit there and take abuse from other people. But speaking the truth in love and putting up with each other in love is required. And let this text speak for itself as well. Here's what a call. Here's a life worthy of the call that we have received. Be completely humble. Completely patient. Completely gentle bearing with one another in love completely. Make every effort to keep the unity in the Spirit. A life worthy of the call is a life of fellowship, a life of unity and diversity which cannot take, apart, cannot take place apart from humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerant love. I wish we had time to continue in Ephesians. One day we will in more detail. In the very next chapter, Paul gets to defining what it means for a church to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be drunk on the Spirit, in fact, is the Greek that Paul uses. To be inebriated in the Holy Spirit. Five things. Speaking in songs, with songs, Singing songs, music. Boy, you think music's important? Makes three of Paul's five. Speaking in songs, singing, music, giving thanks, and then submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. That great biblical ideal of mutual submission. And then Paul proceeds to illustrate the mutual submission that is necessary in the body using the illustrations of marriage and of fathers and mothers and their kids and even of the workplace. A church in action, a church that lives worthy of its call is one that's humble, gentle, patient. It puts up with each other in love. It's a church that sings and gives thanks together and submits to each other. That's the church of God. So be humble, friends. Be gentle. Be patient. And bear with others in love, singing and giving thanks and submitting to those brothers and sisters around you. 
And when we do that, watch out. Because when we do that, you just watch and experience God strengthen our unity and diversity and therefore magnify a million-fold our witness of our great, big, amazing, loving God. You just watch our witness to the world grow when we're humble, gentle, patient, bearing with others in love, singing and giving thanks and submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. You just watch. Let's pray. Father in heaven, here it is again. Here is that rock-bottom foundational barrier in our loving you and loving others. Our rock-bottom foundational barrier in living a life worthy of the calling by grace that we've received. Here it is again, Father. Self-centeredness. Harshness. Feeling we deserve and standing on our rights. Writing people off. Please, Father, enable us through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit who even now is indwelling this body. Help us, Father, make us strong to defeat the temptation of self, the temptation to seek greatness for us. Help us, Father, keep pride at bay so that we can deepen our unity and diversity, our witness to the world of a God who is love. We love you, and Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, before going down to the ministry fair, if you haven't already. You can go down there and you can sign up to, you know, work on your putting up with each other in love. You can join other people who are pains in the butts. (laughs) But first, listen to God's good words, and we're going to talk about this a little bit next week, too. Because you might hear it and you might think, oh my goodness, you know, I've got to be humble and patient and gentle. That is so, how will I ever do it? The answer is, of course, you don't do it alone. Listen to Paul's encouraging words from earlier in Ephesians chapter 3. Here's what he says. Be encouraged. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. That's a lot. According to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you all. Go enjoy the day. After the fair, please, go on down and say hi. Hi.